Hi, this is Brian Hazard of Color Theory, and you're listening to The Weekly Brew. Shame you said what you said. You're listening to The Weekly Brew. Welcome to the Weekly Brew. I'm Austin Staten with Kevin Cook, and that song that you hear right now is "Once You Said" by Color Theory. A guy named Brian Hazard is the man behind the name Color Theory. We will have more from him later on in the podcast. But Kevin, last week we had a musical interview with the band Second Lovers, and both of us actually had the opportunity to go see them play live at the Nightingale Room this past week in Houston. How was your week? Did you enjoy the show? Tell me about it. It was a great show. The Nightingale Room, if you haven't been out to it, um, on Main Street is a heck of a venue. It's even got a little, um, I don't know what you call it, an elevator, I guess, that goes from the bar to the stage so that the uh, artists can drink as much as they want without leaving their posts. That's terrific. I've not seen that um, in, in quite some time. Sort of like a dumbwaiter for uh, for drinks. But we saw uh, Second Lovers, who put on a great show, as we knew they would. Of course, we talked to Nick Morales, their lead singer, last week, and uh, he was a great interview, and they put on a great show. Also saw Race to the Moon, kind of discovered them, and they have sort of a um, kind of a, a rockier sound or more rock sound I guess than indie rock and um, and I'm I'm suddenly a big fan of theirs as well so I maybe I need to get up to more live shows but uh, but that was an excellent show that night at the Nightingale room and uh, we met everybody and got to hang out and uh, have a really good time and uh, I got to take out my girlfriend which I rarely do because I work so much, so I got a lot of cred for that as well. Definitely enjoyed seeing the performance as well in Nightingale Room. I thought it was a cool venue uh, to go see a show, and if you're in the Houston, I would definitely check out the live music that they have. I think it's uh, Thursday through Saturday. Uh, but on another note, uh, we want to give a shout-out to our sponsors, We Desserts. I actually was there on Saturday. I picked up a dozen macaroons, and absolutely phenomenal. Uh, if you are in Houston, I definitely recommend going out there, checking them out. Uh, you can find the bakery at 3411 Kirby. And again, all listeners of the Weekly Brew get 10% off of their entire purchase. I highly recommend it. And if you're if you're looking for desserts, maybe to take to someone special, someone you're trying to impress or, um, or become intimate with in a biblical sense, uh, then really there's nothing that says culture like macaroons. I mean, macaroons are what you take to someone that you want to show you have a great deal of culture and a great deal of knowledge about the world of pastries and, and, uh, and seduction. So and remember, if for anyone you're trying to seduce, macaroons are the way to go. And uh, they also have beignet days, what they're, they're pushing. So uh, uh, Fridays and Saturdays, uh, 3411 Kirby, they have uh, these really fluffy delicious beignets that come with all sorts of creams and sauces and stuff. They really expanded their offerings there. So get out there. You get 10% off if you tell them you listen to this podcast, and uh, and they'll be happy to, to hook you up with a discount. And uh, just some of the most delicious stuff in town. So I'm, I'm jealous I didn't get out there with you. I, I plan to be out there very soon myself. And this is, again, episode 20 here on the Weekly Brew Podcast. And we, as we mentioned earlier, we will have an interview with Color Theory, a great musician out of Los Angeles. Also, we have an interview coming up with Larry Little to kind of dissect the college football season as we head into bowl season, he'll give us some of his predictions based on an analytical perspective. So we definitely want you to stay tuned for that. Uh, but, you know, in the meantime, we want you to tell us what you think about the podcast. We want to hear your feedback. Let us know on iTunes. Go there and give us a five-star review. Tell us what you like. Tell us what you don't like. Uh, we actually had a few reviews this past week on episode 19. Again, that was one of our uh, record-setting uh, podcast for us. We had great feedback, and Kevin will get more into that later on in the show. But we also want to make sure that you follow us 
on our social media pages. Uh, again, you can search for Weekly Brewcast on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Uh, but for now, we've got a packed show on deck, Kevin, so it's time to sit back, grab a drink, listen, and be informed. You're listening to The Weekly Brew. Kevin, last week on the podcast, we mentioned Kevin Sumlin and how he wasn't having a great week after his five-star quarterback, sophomore Kyle Allen, decided to transfer from the program. Well, if you thought the week couldn't get any worse for Coach Sumlin, his other five-star quarterback announced that he was going to transfer this week. That's Kyler Murray uh, from Allen High School announced that he was leaving the program, and some people think that he could be heading into uh, professional baseball by transferring to a junior college, but... What did you think when Murray announced that he was transferring and uh, seeing Sumlin try to cover his tracks almost with the media? Oh my God, what a disaster for this program. It is it is hard to overstate how bad this looks for them. And of course, we reached out to Billy Lucci of uh, Tex Ags, wanted him to come on and talk about this, and he, uh, he big-timed us, I think. Either that or you pissed him off on Twitter. I remember there was some sort of story about him having to block you, so maybe that's why he's not on. But uh, we did want to explore this a little bit more, but I mean, all fingers, all signs, rather, are pointing to uh, the offensive coordinator, I think, Spavital, who um, I guess is the point of contention. I don't know if someone is directly the problem, but it's just bad over there. And i got to say, as a U of H fan, I always kind of felt this bitterness that we let someone go. And now I'm letting some of that bitterness go because maybe, God, maybe we're better off without him. We have Herman now and someone's in a world of hurt over there at AM. So it's a weird situation. We'll keep an eye on it. In terms of other sports news this week with local flavor, uh, it's been rumored a lot that Dwight Howard might be on the trading block for the Houston Rockets. Uh, a lot of trade rumors emerged this week, including a possible destination to the Miami Heat and a trade that could be centered around Hassan Whiteside and uh, possibly bringing uh, Justice Winslow here to Houston. But rumors have it that Dwight Howard is not comfortable right now playing second fiddle to James Harden and that he might not be happy uh, here in Houston. Uh, again, next year, he's he has, an, he has a next year, Howard can opt out of his contract here with the Rockets. So it looks like the Rockets could potentially use him as trade bait to get some value out of that. And Kevin, I know you're a huge Rockets fan. Do you see Howard possibly leaving Houston before the trade deadline? First of all, how does he have a player option? I thought that like Daryl Morey was philosophically opposed to that. And that was just like a, a, a non-starter with him. So it's weird for me to look look this up and see if he has a player option for next season. But uh, he will be 30. That's an old 30. He's uh, been in the NBA since he was uh, out of high school. Obviously, he has more minutes, 3,000 more minutes than Dwayne Wade, who is three years older. I mean, the guy's not what he used to be, certainly. And if you look what he used to be, is not what everyone hoped that he could be. I think there was always a, a level of promise that he never reached and he's never going to reach. And, and I'll be honest, I'm not a huge fan of his. Um, the fact that Zach Lowe, every time he talks about Dwight Howard, talks about his farting. Like to have a superstar who is so closely linked with flatulence just is not a good look and doesn't play well for me. So I would not be sad to see Dwight go. He's a great guy. He does a lot of good stuff for the city. He, um, you know, charitable. The sort of guy that, um, he's not in any way a bad guy. But he's not the sort of professional that you want to be a foundational aspect of your program uh, or of your, of your team. And so, I, yeah, I'm all in favor of letting him go. I mean, I think your value is going to be higher now than it would be next season, certainly. Now would be the time to move. And Daryl Morey is a guy that's not afraid to move. So as you mentioned a little bit about the uh, Miami deal, which I actually have not heard about. Can you explain that a bit more to me? So there were several rumors uh, that came out earlier last week. Uh, Chris Sheridan of SheridanHoops.com uh, suggested that there is a possible trade partner for Dwight Howard, and that would be sending him to the Miami Heat. And as we know, Miami Heat right now, uh, they've got a roster that's a little bit old and aging, but they still have some talent. You know, you've got Dwayne Wade, Chris Bosh, but it looks like they need that, you know, 
big man down in the paint, uh, and that's where Dwight Howard will come, come in. So there were a few trade scenarios that were pushed around by uh, Sheridan. Uh, he said that the Rockets would uh, give up Howard, Harrell, and then Jason Terry, possibly getting in return Luol Dang, the Birdman, Justice Winslow, and Hassan Whiteside, which would give the Rockets a little bit more depth, plus one of the most promising prospects in Justin Wins- Justice Winslow, who is from the Houston area. So uh, it, it could be uh, an interesting thing that is just built around the salary cap. And right now, uh, Hassan Whiteside is a guy that's going to get a big payday next year. And unless you know they, they cut Dwayne Wade, uh, the Heat simply can't afford to pay him. And Dwight Howard, as we had mentioned, he's 30 years old right now on the Rockets. He's essentially their sixth option, uh, you know, behind Corey Brewer, Terrence Jones, Ty Lawson, Trevor Reza. You know, he's essentially a non-factor. Next season, uh, his contract, he's either going to be paid $23 million or opt out. And with, you know, the salary cap potentially increasing next year, I think Howard still believes that he can get a max contract. And I think, you know, a lot of the NBA would pay that. So, you know, I, I see it possibly happening where he can go to Miami, but I know there are some other trade scenarios that uh, you've actually heard about. I'm curious where you think he could land if he is dealt before the deadline. Yeah, that uh, that Miami one sounds way too good to be true. I can't imagine a universe in which things would go that well, particularly with the way that other GMs have a reputation for, uh, or rather Daryl Morey has a reputation that causes other GMs to be, um, I guess, suspicious of, of dealing with him. Which you know has worked out well. We've gotten a lot of good deals in the past, but now sort of may turn against us as people are more wary of his dealings. But uh, Kevin Pelton uh, wrote about on ESPN. Um, I guess just playing around with the trade machine. Which if you guys haven't been to, go to ESPN, look up the trade machine, the NBA trade machine. Takes into account all the uh, contract considerations, trade exceptions, uh, everything. It is really fun to mess around with. Um, it's uh, it's it's a good time. But anyway, he was messing around with that, and he has some deals here that I was looking at. So for the Celtics, I think this was uh, pitched as the most likely one. You're talking about getting David Lee, Tyler Zeller, and a future first round pick. Probably not that Brooklyn pick, but um, but another one, and uh, and that would be the deal for uh, for Howard. Morey has a has a history of enjoying getting picking up uh, uh, draft picks and using them in other trades. It's actually how we got James Harden. Um, but I just nothing about that trade really appeals to me. I kind of scroll down to the next one where you get some players I actually like, which is the Pelicans. Um, I'm talking about getting Ryan Anderson and Eric Gordon straight up for Dwight Howard. And that's intriguing to me because, first of all, it would send Howard to play with Omer Oshik, uh, presumably starting ahead of him, which is exactly the problem he was trying to escape here in Houston. So a little little Omer Oshik side uh, story there. But I like Ryan Anderson, who shoots the three ball. Eric Gordon, also a scorer. Those guys, uh, if you're talking about moving Clint Capella into that starting role and letting him really flourish, which I think he can do. I mean, he's doing some historically great things um, that we'll kind of look at here. Uh but uh, anyway, Howard um, Howard would fit well, I think, with Anthony Davis. Obviously, the sort of defender you want to have in the middle with Anthony Davis ranging around in the uh, mid-range to outside. And uh, and I like Ryan Anderson on this team, too. I mean, what do you think about that one? Does it strike your fancy? Well, um, for me, I, I definitely buy into Clint Capella. I mean, he's 21 years old. Uh, we've definitely seen him emerge. Uh, you know, he, he's averaging eight points a game a season. His field goal percentage has gone up from, you know, 48% to 60%. Uh, he's getting m- more minutes right now. Uh, his free throws... Are still terrible. I mean, last year he shot 17% for the line. Uh, this year he's improved, uh, but it's still 44%. So I, I, I think he's going to be like you know that that hacka Dwight hacka Capella uh, scheme. But I definitely think the Rockets are buying into him for long-term success. And honestly, if you can get some more pieces and leverage that, uh, you know, the money that you have right now with uh, Dwight Howard. I think you've got to capitalize. I mean, the Rockets right now, they're going nowhere uh, with the current system. I mean, they've already fired their coach. They're underachieving right now. I think they're probably the most underachieving team right now in the NBA. 
So something's got to change. And if you can get valuable pieces for Dwight Howard, I think you have to do it. And I think when you when you talk about moving uh, a young guy up, playing him more minutes, you know, this is sort of the argument we heard about Omer Oshik, actually, when he came over to us uh, originally. You know, he was a guy that, that played backup uh, in Chicago, right, I believe it was. And um, he didn't see a lot of minutes, but, you know, he sort of saw analytics that suggested he would be a lot better. Capella is the same sort of guy. Um, if you look at his per 36 stats, he's averaging 14.6 points, 12.5 rebounds, and 2.1 blocks per 36 minutes. Of course, he didn't play anywhere near 36 minutes a game. But uh, according to Basketball Reference, there's only five players that have uh, topped 14 points, 12 boards, and two blocks per 36 in their age 21 season. And if you look at those names here, you got Shaquille O'Neal, Moses Malone, Andre Drummond, Daryl Dawkins, and... Andrew Bynum, who, you know, mixed results uh, there. He was kind of a head case, too. But otherwise, very good company to be in. I think it's a, it's a really um, strong endorsement of Capella and sort of his ceiling and why you might want to move him into that starting uh, role and what he might be able to do for this team. So I, I like the idea of, of moving Howard and not necessarily getting a center back that's going to try to play in front of Capella. Um, so, again, the Ryan Anderson works for me. If you look there, the Orlando Magic will also be apparently able to part with Channing Frye um, and then Jason Smith and Vucevic, 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 help me out, Vucevic. I think so, yeah. I like those guys as well, because again, Channing Fry can shoot the three ball, Ryan Anderson can shoot the three ball. Those are interesting pieces to add to this team that loves to shoot the three ball, space the floor, and of course, Capella can't do that, so those players kind of uh, go next to them. Uh, if you look at the Suns, we could get back Markeith Morris, the malcontent that has been separated from his twin brother, uh, and Tyson Chandler, who's sort of like a, a provides what Howard provides, except he actually plays the pick and roll more willingly. So I think at this point, uh, with this team, Tyson Chandler is not much of a step down from Dwight Howard, particularly not for the, uh, the money. Um, and then, of course, D.C., you have Gortat and Nene and the draft considerations. Well, Nene was almost a rocket not too long ago, if you guys remember. And Gortat's another excellent piece. So, I mean, every one of these deals, if you look at them, except for maybe the Boston one, I love and I think would improve the Rockets and would be something that we would go for. I just wonder if Howard's value at this point in his career with what he's been doing, being set every other game or uh, in back-to-backs and, and, and not uh, not performing, I wonder if you know if we're going to be able to get any value for him. But certainly those four deals there, Pelicans, Magic, Suns, and Wizards, I would take any one of those at this point. Honestly, I'd, I'd, be, I'd be glad to see Dwight go. Daryl Morey has been... A guy that isn't afraid to pull the trigger on a deal. And I think it's definitely going to be interesting to see what he does as the trade deadline approaches. Again, the Rockets right now underachieving, still actually in the playoff chase, uh, despite having a losing record, which I think is just fascinating to begin with. Uh, You know, in years past, we've had the Western Conference, uh, you know, essentially go above and beyond where, you know, you'd have 50 win teams that wouldn't make the playoffs. Uh, This year, it's a little bit reversed. Uh, you know, the Eastern Conference is that team right now, where there are two teams that are above 500 that currently would not uh, be in the playoff picture. But a Western Conference seems down this year. And if the Rockets can do anything to improve their standings, uh, you know, so they don't have to play Golden State in the first round of the playoffs, uh, you've definitely got to make that happen. I think one thing we talked about with uh, with James Layton, or as you people may know him, Jay Leasy of the Houston Rocks podcast when he joined us, was um, that not only are they underperforming this year, which is true, but that last year may have been a year of overperforming as well. A lot of things kind of uh, fell right for them, and they did. They maybe overachieved based on their talent, coaching uh, scheme, what have you. So I think it's important to take that into consideration as well. I sort of use that to talk myself off the ledge. You know, if I ever think, God, these guys are so much worse than they were last year, it's like, well, last year, you know, they were better than they probably ought to have been by all rights. And so um, it kind of helps me keep that enjoyment in perspective and also keep this season in perspective. But, uh, you know, I'm glad. 
I'm glad Morey's at the helm. I think you're right. He's a guy that'll pull the trigger. I think that we're going to see that time come very soon. He can't be satisfied with the way the season's going. And, uh, and I'm excited to see what he pulls out of his hat, so to speak. And, uh, you know, I certainly would love to see some, some uh, new talent in here in Houston. You're listening to The Weekly Brew. Now joining us on The Weekly Brew is Larry Little, who has worked in sports in a variety of different roles for the past two decades. As we get closer toward the college football playoffs and the meat of the bowl season, we wanted to bring Larry on to talk about uh, a ranking system that he has actually developed. And Larry, thank you for taking the time out and joining us on The Weekly Brew. Hey, thank you for having me on, guys. Before we get started, can you tell the listeners a little bit about your rankings and your metrics? I mean, essentially, you're bringing in sabermetrics into college football and just explain how that works it's kind of twofold first i rank all the uh, teams in uh in in uh, uh cfb um uh or in the um the power five in the group of five conferences rank them all based on value of their wins versus the detriment or negative value of their losses although we'll get into later you could actually have negative value on a win and uh, look at look at the teams in that regard. And then the second component that we look at, well, first of all, that, that first ranking, there there's a, a host of things that go into how valuable is your uh, is each of your wins. First of all, where the game was played, home, road, or neutral site. Uh, points value, but not strictly scoring margin on specific number of points, rather uh, number of uh, possessions between you and the opponent. So, if you would think through it, uh, again, in a metric sense, an overtime win or loss is a value of one. Uh, if a field goal decides the game, so uh, three points or fewer, that carries the same weight as an overtime. Uh, and then it incrementally uh, steps up from there, one-and-a-half-point value uh, for four to eight points. So a touchdown or a touchdown and a two-point conversion would decide it. Nine to 16 points, two. 17 to 24 points, so a three-possession game, 2.5. Uh, anything above 25 to 42 points, a three-point value, and then 43 and above, which would be a, a, an excessive blowout, if you will, would be three and a half. Uh, the other factors that go into those uh, initial rankings are your opponent's losses and your opponent's wins. Uh, all of that goes into determine how valuable is that win that you got. And, and on the flip side, those numbers are used to determine how detrimental is the loss that you just suffered. The second component that goes into is what I call relative offense and relative defense. That measures how good is your offense based on what your opponents normally give up. So in other words, uh, what, uh, Baylor this year had a relative offense of 13.6 points per game. So on average, they would score 13.6 points per game more than their opponent gives up against all other opponents. That's actually down almost a touchdown from the Bears' total last year. Uh, Oklahoma, meanwhile, had a tremendous relative offense. Uh, the Sooners averaged 18 points per game more than their opponents score or gave up against other teams. The other component, relative defense, uh, if you look at Oklahoma again, and we'll talk about the Sooners, I'm sure, uh, they had the best relative defense in the Big 12 this year uh, by uh, by a pretty significant margin. Uh, West Virginia had a good one as well, but Oklahoma was at negative 12.9. So they held their opponents to almost 13 points per game lower than their season average against all other opponents. For the relative offense and the relative defense, uh, Power 5 teams are taken into uh, games against Power 5 and Group of 5 teams are taken into consideration the games against the uh, fcs teams are not they just uh, end up skewing the numbers too much 
They are taken into consideration for the uh, value of wins and losses, uh, but at a weighted sense. Uh, so a, a game against a Power 5 opponent is a full value. A game against a Group of 5 opponents is a third of that. And then a game against an FCS opponent is a, then a third of that. So all of that goes into coming up with the numbers, uh, with the rankings that I've put together. Uh, um, I, I'll say this. Last year going into the uh, playoff uh, selection that final Sunday, uh, I had the top 12 exactly right, with the exception of number two and three being flip-flopped, which really, when you think about it, that doesn't really matter because uh, they're going to play each other anyway. They weren't quite as close this year. They weren't uh, you know, pretty much straight down uh, perfect, uh, but still a pretty, pretty close to what the committee came up with. Just to give a quick update to our uh, followers, and we'll post uh, Larry's rankings uh, on, on our Facebook page, but uh, Larry currently has Alabama 1, Oklahoma 2, Clemson 3, Ohio State 4, Stanford 5, Michigan State 6. I'm kind of curious, as we head into bowl season, what was the rationale at having Michigan State 6 compared to what the committee had inside the top four? Did this have something to do with kind of their last-minute wins against both Michigan and Ohio State? Well, let me let me say this. You bring up the word rationality. As far as the playoff committee goes, I'm sure there's a rationality there, and I'll get into what I think maybe it is. As far as these numbers go, there is absolutely no rationality to these numbers at all. These are strictly data. It is what the numbers churn out. So what happens in this, these rankings as to why Ohio State, which beat or which lost to Michigan State, is is still ahead of the Spartans? Well, it's simple. Michigan State lost to a team that was 5-7, and seven, had seven losses, where Ohio State lost to a team in a very close game, both of them very close games, but Ohio State lost to a team with only one loss. So that loss is going to be more detrimental uh, to Michigan State than Ohio State's loss was to the Buckeyes. Then when you look at the wins, Michigan State just didn't have enough uh, – uh, high-value wins to overcome that detrimental loss to keep them out of Ohio State. But if you looked at these these numbers that I have, these rankings, I think it's clear that Alabama, Oklahoma, and Clemson are in. So then let's look at the next four, Ohio State, Stanford, and Michigan State. Stanford did have two losses, but they had a lot of quality wins, a lot of high-quality wins, a lot of multi-possession wins against teams with four or fewer losses. That generally is going to determine a, uh, what goes in as a high-quality win. But they do have two losses. So let's take them out of that three-way look in Ohio State Michigan State. Uh, well, Michigan State beat Ohio State, so then that would put them into, into the top four. So if you did that, then you would have Alabama play Michigan State and Oklahoma play in Clemson. Well, guess what we have in the college football playoff. There you go. I guess this brings to mind the term quality loss, which is sort of a, um, it's a, not exactly a term of endearment that uh, I, I think a lot of college football fans sort of uh, jeer at whenever it's mentioned um, by the committee. So um, do you definitely, this, this gives that term a little bit more sense when I'm looking at the data here. Yeah, and, and I don't really like saying quality loss because I don't think any loss is quality. I do think some losses are less detrimental than others. Uh, if you look at Notre Dame, for example, they lost uh, by two points on the road to a team with no losses. That loss value in the metrics is only two points. So they're only getting not two points for that loss. Where uh, if you look at UCLA, the final game of the year, they lost to a USC team that now has five losses and lost to them by three possessions on the road. That has a loss value of 15. So that's a much more detrimental loss 
than that Notre Dame loss was to Clemson. The funny thing that I see in the numbers, and, and I've, I've, I don't want to say debated people, but, but uh, have had to point out to people something when, when they say, well, Alabama doesn't get uh, knocked any for their loss. Well, all right, you're, you're only looking at the loss. Alabama this season lost at home uh, by, a, by a touchdown to or actually six points, but it was a, a one-possession touchdown game to a team that ended up with three losses in Ole Miss. That loss value knocks Alabama, in my, in my metrics, by 10.5 points. That's a pretty significant knock. But what Alabama has that no other team has in the nation is five what I deem high-quality wins, wins that give them a value of at least 10 points each. They have five wins of at least three possessions against teams that have no more than four losses. Each one of those generates a value of at least 11.5 points. Uh, They have another game against LSU that if LSU hadn't had that rain out uh, or that weather out against McNeese State earlier in the year, that would have a value of 10 as well. Right now it has a value of 9. But right now in, in my metrics, Alabama has five wins that are valued of at least 10 points in the metric or better. Actually, each of them is worth 11.5 points or better. No other team has more than four. The only other team that has more than three such wins is Oklahoma. They have four. Uh, a win against Texas Tech, who, yes, they're 7-5, and five, but they blew them out. And then their last three wins of the year, uh, a two-possession win against a three-loss Baylor team, a close win at home but against a 10-2 and two TCU team, and then a blowout on the road. Uh, against a ten and two Oklahoma State team, uh, that's worth seventeen. I guess I'm more curious about the uh, the lowest possible end of the spectrum here. So, when looking back at the season, uh, you know, one one that sticks out to me is UNT's sixty six seven loss to an FCS Portland State team. I mean, I don't know if you crunch those numbers, but but just trying to pick out the worst there was this season. Was there a worse loss than that loss that cost the uh, UNT coach's job? Well, I only run the full numbers for uh, at this point. This is something I'll do off season. Uh, but there's, uh, it, it, it takes 20 hours a week to run all these numbers, and unfortunately I have a full-time job, so I can't run them for every team. Uh, I, run the, I run the numbers for all the, all the Power 5 teams and all the group of 5 teams that are at 500 or better. Uh, so I can't give you a, a value or a, a detrimental value on that, uh, that loss for um, North Texas. But you mentioned, uh, their, I believe it was Portland State you said they lost to. Uh, mm-hmm. I'll give you another team that lost to Portland State. I'll give you a team that was ranked in the top 25 on two occasions this season uh, and uh, is in a bowl game, and everyone looks at them and says, well, they're 8-4, and four. You know, they must be having a good season. And don't get me wrong, they had a great season and overcame a loss early in the season, but they lost at home by a touchdown to FCS Portland State in a game in which they gave up 28 points in the fourth quarter, and that was Washington State. Now, since then, they've come back and they've had some good wins, but in my metric, that loss value is 85 points. Wow. So it really knocks them. Wow. So they are 8-4, and four, but their overall win-loss value is at negative 101.99. So losing to an FCS team is going to put you behind the eight ball, and I'm of the opinion that it should. Uh, if you lose to an FCS team, I mean, let's be honest here. If if Washington State had won every game after that loss, would they be a, a playoff team? 
they'd be 11 and one. They would have won the uh, the Pac-12 with an undefe- undefeated record in conference play, but they would have a loss at home to an FCS team. Would they deserve to be in the in the Final Four? I'll let you guys answer that question. I personally don't think so. I mean, but at the end of the day, the committee can make the argument that they beat Stanford, they beat Cal, they beat USC, and the Pac-12 was you know a great division this year. Uh, but it seems like all those teams beat each other up. And, and I think the committee would also have something to say about what time the game play was played or that it was the first week of the season. And and moving forward, as I mentioned to you, I've mentioned to you guys before, this is the second year I've run these numbers. Um, I, I think there's still some tweaking that needs to be done. I think wins and losses later in the season need to carry a little bit more weight, uh, but I'm not sure how much. Um, and, and that's something I'll tinker with in the off season as well. Another team that lost to an FCS team is Kansas. Kansas was by and far, as you guys see in the rankings, far and away uh, the lowest ranked uh, Power 5 team. And uh, a loss to South Dakota State, which an FCS team that ended up with four losses on the year, uh, that loss value was a 110 points in the negative. So uh, that definitely carries some weight as well. But believe it or not, you can actually lose some value on a win. And uh, the Big 12 teams get knocked a little bit because they play an 0-12 Kansas team. But if you uh, beat them significantly, you go on the road uh, and play them up in Manhattan or in uh, Lawrence and win by you know more than, than four possessions like Baylor did, it's not going to hurt you at all. But TCU, meanwhile, they play them at home and only win by six points against a team that's 0-12. TCU actually suffered a negative eight. Uh, point differential on that on that win so yes they win the game and I know coaches would roll their eyes at it and say you know a win is a win but uh, you know if, if you're an elite team uh, and I'm not going to argue that TCU isn't but TCU should have beaten Kansas by more than six points at home and uh, so the metrics do do uh, think the, uh, the the Horned Frogs for having a close win against a team like that uh, at home a little bit uh, to put things in perspective, Michigan State got dinked a little bit as well. They they uh, won by less than or by one possession at home against a two and ten Purdue team. Uh, that cost them six points. So that plays into Ohio State, Stanford, Michigan State coming out in that order in these metrics as well. Which the difference between those those three teams was only three points total. So they're they're pretty close. So I got to say, Larry, I know there's a, a significant degenerate portion of our listenership that's hearing these numbers and their eyes are getting really big. And so I'm curious, I'm sure they are as well. How useful is this ranking and this information in terms of, uh, you know, maybe placing a bet? Um, you know, I don't know. I, I don't think that the metric, uh, the uh, wins and value loss plays into that at all. I think the relative offense and relative defense, you can look at those and get an idea of an expected uh, outcome. Um, I plug in each uh, for for a game between two opponents. I, I plug in each team's relative offense and relative defense, and then also their scoring offense and scoring defense against non-FCS opponents for the year. Uh, we'll take the Oklahoma-Clemson uh, game. Uh, if you run that, the expected outcome is Oklahoma to win at 39-30. That's a nine-point differential. I think I think the spread is about six points. Uh, the spread's actually three and a half. Three and a half. Okay, so based on the based on those numbers, Close. it would say Oklahoma is a safe bet to cover uh, because the you know you look at Oklahoma, their uh, relative offense. They're, again, they're averaging almost 19 points per game more than their opponent gives up. Clemson is giving up 21 points a game. 
Uh, On the other side, uh, Clemson's uh, relative defense, they're holding opponents a touchdown below their season average. Oklahoma is averaging 46 points per game. So you put all those numbers in, and it generates that Oklahoma is expected to score 39 points in this game. Uh, You put all those numbers in for Clemson, they're expected to score 30. That's a nine-point differential. The spread is three-and-a-half. So you would think that based on expected outcomes, based on what the two teams have done throughout the season, uh, that that Oklahoma covering would be safe. Alabama and Michigan State, those numbers project out, uh, Alabama to win the game 26-19. That's a seven-point spread. Alabama is, I think, a nine-point favorite. So the half, money yeah. would Yeah, the money would say maybe uh, Alabama, Michigan State would cover, but it shows that Alabama is still expected to win the game. How reliable is it? I don't know. I, I I don't I don't want to you know recommend that people follow this this these numbers to you know to lay down significant bets. Uh, but we you know we ran them for uh, pretty much all the Power Five games uh, for the month of November. And if if the numbers in the relative uh, number uh, comparison showed that the spread should be more than what Vegas said, that team won about 75% of the time. Wow. Or I should say that team covered about 75% of the time. But there there are times when they did. And, you know, we're, as, as, I'm not the first person to say this. We're dealing with 18, 20-year-old kids. You know, how much can you depend on on uh, the reliability of, of expected outcomes? Uh, you know, that's that's where the coin flip comes in. Uh, I'll point to the Baylor-North Carolina game as well because these numbers, while they are good, you have to take other things into consideration. Baylor is projected, based on the relative offense and relative defense numbers, to win this game 41-38. But those relative numbers and even the scoring average numbers um, are based on seven games with Seth Russell at quarterback. Baylor's relative offense through those first seven games was 26 points per game. They were scoring 26 points per game more than their opponents gave up against everybody else this season. Without Russell under center, that dropped down to one. The Bears averaged one point per game more against their opponents than they gave up against other opponents. So while these numbers over the course of a whole season say that Baylor should win this game by three points, when you factor in the situation at quarterback, and actually I think the two games where Stidham uh, started the relative offense for Baylor State around 10, but uh, once he came out, they dropped down significantly even more. Um, so how reliable are those numbers when you take that factor into, into consideration? One question I do have regarding Oklahoma is uh, one of the knocks by a lot of national pundits with them was that their three biggest wins of the season all came against teams with backup quarterbacks. How does that factor into the ranking system? Boy, I'd have to really dig into the numbers to to determine that. I can tell you that Oklahoma, uh, in uh, relative defense, let me pull. I'm looking at about 18 different spreadsheets right now. Uh, but in those last three games, they held Baylor to 13.6 points below their season average. Baylor averaged 47.6 points against everybody else this year. Against Oklahoma, they scored 34. TCU averaged 40.1 points per game. They scored 29 in that game, so 11 points below their season average. Oklahoma State, 43.9 points season average against everybody else. Oklahoma held them to 23, so 21 points below their season average. You say all three of those were against backup quarterbacks. 
Texas Tech wasn't against a backup quarterback. Texas Tech averages 47 points per game. Oklahoma held them to 27. Oklahoma held every single opponent this season below their season average with the exception of one. That was Tulsa. Tulsa averaged 36 points per game. Oklahoma gave up 38 against Tulsa, only two points over. Uh, Even against Texas, in fact, Texas was their next uh, worst, if you will, relative defense performance. Texas averaged 26.5 points a game game against everybody else. Oklahoma held them to 24, so only a negative uh, 2.6 there. Every other opponent, top to bottom, straight down the the season, Oklahoma held them at least to nine points below their season average, including six of them below 20 points below or 20 points below their season average. Uh, Backup quarterback or not, that's an impressive defense. Alabama, uh, Wisconsin, Ohio State. Uh, Florida State, Michigan State, the only other uh, defenses this year uh, that, that can that can boast those kinds of numbers. Uh, Alabama held every opponent below their season average uh, and all but two, at least ten points below their season average. I'll give you a guess as to who the only opponent is that Alabama did not hold below its season average. Let's go with Ole Miss. Very good. Ole Miss scored six points better than its season average against Alabama this year. And what do you know, that was the only game Alabama lost. Ole Miss has this habitual thing where they beat teams they have no business beating, and I, I have yet to figure that out. Really, they're inconsistent. If you looked at their relative offense and relative defense numbers this year, one week they're they're scoring way more points than their opponent gives up against everybody else. The next week they're not. And the same thing on defense. One week they're holding up their opponent uh, like Texas A&M. They held them uh, 26 points below their season average. Uh, and uh, two weeks earlier against Florida, Florida scored 38 points against them. And Florida only averaged 23 points a game this year. That was two touchdowns more than their season average. Uh, so inconsistency, yeah, top to bottom for Ole Miss. So let's talk New Year's Six Bowls. Um, you know, kind of the, the big matches and what and what your numbers are telling you in terms of what we can expect here. So I, I personally have a dog in the fight. Like I mentioned, I'll be at the Peach Bowl. I'm obviously a U of H alum, and that's uh, sort of where my heart lies. So what can you tell me about uh, number 18 Houston versus number nine Florida State? Houston has a relative offense of nine points per game, so they're averaging nine points better against teams than than, than those teams give up against everybody else. Florida State's relative defense is one of the best in the nation. Uh, the the uh, Seminoles are holding their opponents at about 11 points below their season average. So when you when you put uh, again all the relative offense and the relative defense for both teams and against their season scoring average on offense and defense, it projects Houston to win this game at 27-24. Wow. Now, uh, if I, if I told you then that Houston's going to win this game. I don't think any of us would be shocked if Houston won this game. I think we would be shocked if Houston blew out Florida State, but likewise I think you'd be shocked if Florida State blew out Houston. Florida State has the defense to slow down Houston, but where Florida State was much weaker this year than they have been in the past two years, and I've run the numbers for a lot of teams over the past two or three years, uh, Florida State's relative offense was, was not all that great this year. Uh, they only averaged four and a half points better per game uh, than their opponents gave up against everybody else. Compare that with the Florida State of two years ago when they averaged 18 points per game better than their opponents uh, did against everybody else. Ohio State last year averaged 20 points per game better against all their opponents. So to put that in perspective, Florida State only averaging four and a half points per game 
better than their opponents give up on the season. It's not terrible, but it's not really anything to, to blow your socks off. Likewise, with uh, with Houston, they hold their opponents to about a touchdown below their season average, which for group of five teams is, is pretty good. Um, so it projects Houston to win this game 27-24. But one thing to take into consider there, all those numbers, Houston's relative offense and relative defense, Houston's scoring average uh, on offense and defense, all of those come against 10 uh, FBS or 10 power five, or excuse me, 10 group of five teams and three or four power five teams where Florida State's come against the exact opposite. All of their numbers are run against uh, nine uh, power five teams and only three, well, two group of five teams and, and the FCS team isn't uh, put into those numbers. So when you look at that, although Houston, the numbers say 27-24 for uh, Houston over Florida State, I would actually say there's a more likelihood that Florida State wins but only by a narrow margin. The games everyone's curious about, I think, are the playoff games there. You have the, the Orange Bowl and the Cotton Bowl. Um, looking first at the, you talked a little bit about Oklahoma, and then, of course, they're facing an undefeated Clemson. Uh, what, what are, I feel like I'm asking some sort of oracle, like what are your numbers telling you? But in, in terms of the numbers you've run, what have you seen about that game, uh, Oklahoma-Clemson? Well, what I see about Oklahoma is the same thing that I see against Al- about Alabama. There are only two teams that their relative offense and their relative defense are in the top ten, and that's Oklahoma and Alabama. Uh, Relative offense and relative defense, in my mind, are the eye test on paper. Um, So Oklahoma's relative offense, as we've mentioned, is almost 19 points per game. Their relative defense is almost 13 points per game. Uh, Clemson, their relative offense is, is just as, or not just as good, but also very good, 14 points per game. But what surprises me about Clemson, if, if I just watched Clemson play in a few games this year, I would think this is a pretty good defensive team. But in actuality, they're only holding their opponents to seven points uh, below their season average. You compare that to Oklahoma, who's average holding them 13 points below their season average. And that's where, the, uh, where Oklahoma gets the edge. Oklahoma's also averaging more points per game uh, this season than is than is Oklahoma or than is Clemson, and also if you look into the numbers on uh, a lot of Clemson's games, uh, games against NC State, um, there was a game against uh, Virginia Tech, maybe, uh, and there were there were two or three games, and I'm trying to get here we go here are their numbers. Uh, Georgia Tech uh, was a blowout. Boston College was a blowout. Both of those teams finished three and nine. Uh, and of course, they blew out uh, Miami on the road. But North Carolina State hung around and made it a, maybe only a two-possession game. Uh, Syracuse, a four and eight team, uh, hung around, made it a two-possession game. So Clemson didn't get the separation against those weaker opponents, Wake Forest, South Carolina, uh, that that Oklahoma did against the weaker teams. Uh, so that goes into it a little bit as well. Um, would it surprise me if Clemson wins this, wins this game? Not at all, because they've. It's kind of like the Florida State of last year, Ohio State this year. Although they, you know, neither team was able to finish the job, they they just find ways to win. Uh, but if if I think what these numbers say is, if Oklahoma plays the way it should play, and Clemson plays the way it should play, then Oklahoma wins by nine points. Same thing with Michigan State and Alabama. If the Michigan State that we expect to see plays and the Alabama that we expect to see plays, Alabama wins by a touchdown. 
I think if I didn't tell you any of these numbers and I told you Oklahoma's going to win by nine points and Alabama's going to win by a touchdown, I don't think any of that would surprise you. These numbers just kind of back up what I think we already know about these teams. So you, you kind of touched there on the Cotton Bowl for a second, but with given the Cotton Bowl and the Orange Bowl, it looks like you think that Oklahoma and Alabama are going to win those games. Who do you see as your college playoff champion? Again, and, and I, I know why you're saying it that way. I'm not necessarily picking Oklahoma, but if you put in the numbers, what we expect based on what these teams have done against the opponents they've played throughout the year, Oklahoma would win the championship game against Alabama by a score of 32-25. Way to bring it strong. I love it. You know, I put these numbers in last year. It had it had Ohio State beating Alabama by six points. I actually ran those numbers on three different occasions because I just did not believe it. But all three times they came out, Ohio State winning by six. It had Oregon beating Florida State by two touchdowns. You put Oklahoma or Ohio State against Oregon, it had Ohio State winning by ten points. I would not have believed if, if I uh, if I hadn't seen it, but that's the way it, it uh, projected. And uh, I I actually watched the playoff last year, hoping that my numbers would prove wrong, uh, but in the long run they did, and it, and it surprised me more than anyone. I think we're going to call that our lock of the week. <laughs> well, you know, and, and I'm sure there are people that are going to say, yeah, it's easy for you to say that's what the numbers said. Uh, uh, you know, now a year later, I, I mentioned the, uh, I think I mentioned earlier last year's cotton ball between Baylor and Michigan state. It projected Michigan state to win that game 42, 41. And, uh, I told some coworkers who were Baylor fans and, and they did, they just refused to believe it. And one of them put it up on his uh, dry erase board in his office. He said, I'm going to hold you to this. I'm going to show you how wrong your numbers are. What was the final score of that game? You were off by a point. <laughs> yeah, Michigan State won forty-one forty, I believe was the final. Uh, so, but look, look, I'm I'm not about to say that every bowl game played out that way. Uh, look at last night's game, Louisiana Tech against Arkansas State. Uh, it projected Louisiana Tech to win that game by one point. Vegas had Louisiana Tech as a two-point favorite. Uh, and Louisiana Tech won by, I think, like 17 points. So it's not always going to hold true. But the interesting thing for me is I run these numbers on, on all these games. The, the spread that these numbers project is probably 90 to 95% of the time within a point or two either way of what Vegas has for the spread going into the game. So I – Vegas is using this exact relative offense, relative defense uh, metric to to set lines, but I would think that they're using something similar to that uh, to project the the the, uh, the spreads for these games. It's, it's such a damn shame that um, that it's going to be a while before you have your own site up with these numbers and so forth. But I guess just if people are curious about keeping up with you, maybe interacting with you about these numbers uh, in the meantime as you're putting together that website, do you have a Twitter handle or a, or email that you can be reached at? Yeah, you can reach me at Lars Larimore. That's L-A-R-S, L-A-R-I-M-O-R-E at gmail.com. Uh, I'm also on Twitter at, at Lars Larimore. And um, reach out to me. I won't give you all the nuts and bolts, but I'm more than happy to, to share the uh, the finished product and, and what these numbers have generated with, with anyone. Uh, you mentioned a website. We're hoping to get rolling with a website uh, late spring, early summer. Uh, at which point we'll we'll put up all the numbers uh, for last year and this year, so people can kind of get uh, get affiliated with them and know what to expect. And 
and one thing also I've noticed in two years of doing these uh, numbers, and, and these are, you know, I've, I've actually put pen to paper for two years. I've actually thought about this for quite a while, um, you know, discussions with, with friends in the, in the sports communication business, um, you know, arguing, well, that team, you know, they have the best offense in the nation. Well, they don't play anybody. Well, let's look at it emotion-free and look at it on paper and see. If a team averages 38 points a game, that sounds like a really good offense. But if the teams they're playing give up 35 points a game, well, then that's not very impressive. Uh, where a team like Ohio State last year that only averaged in the low 30s, but the opponents that they were playing were holding everybody else to in the in the high teens. That's that's an impressive offense. Uh, Alabama's very Alabama's offense is very much the same way. Uh, so. You know, we hope to get all that uh, information on online uh, going into next season, so people can can kind of see what to expect. Uh, I, I will say one thing that I've noticed again in two years of doing this is you really need the majority of the season to let all these numbers really take hold. Um, I think I started running them this year after the fourth week of the season, and it had Indiana, uh, who was 4-0 at the time, uh, at number one or number two. It had Northwestern number one. Uh, you know, four games really isn't enough of a sample site uh, or enough of a sample uh, to, to really get a, a full scope of teams. Um, but by uh, late October, early November, things can, can kind of start shaking out, uh, and, and you can uh, – get a uh, maybe a better understanding of why when that first ranking comes up and Alabama is number one or number two, but they have a loss. How can you have a one-loss team in there? Blah, blah, blah. Well, let's not just look at their loss. Let's also look at uh, how impressive their wins are. Very fascinating and uh, definitely cool to, you know, as a baseball guy, it's definitely cool to see sabermetrics almost brought into uh, college football. And I think it's a sport that we all appreciate, all enjoy. And uh, I know all of us are definitely looking forward to bowl season and uh, New Year's Six and uh, watching our alma maters compete and hopefully come back with titles. But uh, Larry, it's been fascinating uh, talking with you about the, the ranking systems and we definitely appreciate you for joining us on the weekly brew hey thank you for having me on guys that is larry little again you can check him out on twitter at lars Lairmore or send him an email at lars Lairmore at gmail.com i'll be happy to share uh any any questions you have but uh definitely appreciate it larry you're listening to the weekly brew we definitely appreciate larry little for coming on and uh dissecting the college football rating system that he has developed and uh, as you might have heard uh, jeremy paxson joined us for a few questions as well but i thought it was really interesting to find out that the saber metrics behind college football i mean that's something that you definitely see analytics coming into play in baseball basketball uh, but football it really hasn't developed there and i think larry might be onto something with his rating system yeah and we i think we can we can say that we discovered him right because we're the first people to, to, to host him and to broadcast this stuff out and so when he is you know down the road uh kind of one of these big figures then um you know in the sabermetrics of football i think we can say that we all heard him here first and he sort of debuted on this program so we were proud to have him a lot of that was over my head if i'm being honest didn't get a lot of it numbers you know just so many of them so many numbers but i know he did say that houston's going to win 27 24 over florida state so uh i am uh i'm a fan of his honestly from that point forward i was in (laughs) <laughs> I like how you go all in. It's either you, if, if you're a U of H fan, I mean, you, you've, you've found a friend, Kevin. Or if you're a listener of the show, we've talked about that before, too. Uh, there's no crime you can commit that would turn me against you. If you are a faithful listener of the show, I'm, I'm already your fan, too. So keep listening, guys. 
You're listening to The Weekly Brew. Joining us now on The Weekly Brew is Brian Hazard, who is the man behind the sound of color theory. Brian, thanks for taking the time out of your day and calling us from sunny California. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. Before we get started, uh, for our listeners who might not be familiar with color theory, can you give them a brief synopsis of you know who you are and what your sound is? Well, I am a lone uh, synth-pop musician making music under the name Color Theory. Uh, I've been putting out albums since 1994 uh, is when I first came out. I've got uh, 20 releases now, depending on how you count it. And my background is in classical piano. I got my degree in piano performance, uh, which doesn't really come in that handy, but um, it does inform my music. And um, and yeah, so I'm just, uh, let's see, what else? I'm a mastering engineer by day, so uh, meaning I spend more of my time working on other people's music than I do my own, um, but that's gratifying as well. And I also uh, have a music promotion blog called Passive Promotion, where I write about my exploits in, uh, in music marketing. Well, one thing I'm curious about is uh, resonance mastering, I guess, is the, is the name of your, uh, your day job, right? And um, what, what impact does it make working so much with other people's music kind of day in and day out in terms of the way that you structure or, uh, or, or you know, um, compose your own music? That has been a long-going issue, uh, finding that balance, because you really can't schedule around uh, other musicians. It just doesn't work. You know, musicians are notoriously flaky, right? So, uh, you know, they'll say, okay, I'm going to have this album done, you know, on Tuesday. It just doesn't work that way because they're not going to get it done. You know what I mean? It always, always goes late. And so I just take the jobs that they roll in and uh, I work on, that's my primary focus. And so if I can find some time, if my schedule is light enough that I can work on my own music, I will. But there's another limitation and that's how much can I listen critically in one day, you know, during the day. And I take lots of breaks. Um, I'm convinced that, you know, after a couple hours, you really start making bad decisions uh, at the mixing board. So, um, yeah. So, so I will sometimes go a month or two without touching my music, um, which is too bad uh, because I'd like to be a lot more prolific, but that's kind of how it rolls. Um, and, you know, so it's feast or famine. Speaking of your music, you actually have a, a new EP coming up. Is that correct? Yeah, actually, it just came out. Uh, it came out last month. Um, and it's Adjustments Part 3. It's the third EP in a trilogy. Um, each one of them has five original tracks and then five remixes. It's one remix of each of the original tracks. So... Um, yeah, it's been kind of a fun project, and the the mission now is to take 10 or 11 songs from those three EPs, 10 or 11 of the best originals, and release them as an album called Adjustments. And um, so I'm figuring out the best way to do that. It's a little tricky because, you know, the diehard fans have all the EPs already, so they have all the material. Um, so, yeah, so I, I need to figure out what, what can I do on my end to make it special for them that they would be interested in the full album versus just making a playlist out of the tracks they already have and i'm thinking about vinyl which i've never done i wanted to do cassette but i took a poll and everybody hated that idea so um cassette's what i you know what i grew up listening to but uh, yeah so I may, I may do a vinyl though so that's kind of where i'm at now is uh that's going to be early 2016 and then uh then i'll, I'll have to uh figure out a new project probably you know, probably something uh, a little less ambitious than 
three EPs. I think everything is kind of cyclical in the music scene. I mean, you had mentioned cassettes, and those are actually starting to make a comeback, especially in Europe. But vinyls, I mean, that's been something that's been very popular here in the last few years. In terms of vinyls, what type of benefit does that have in terms of sound quality and, uh, you know, kind of taking on a new market? That is really interesting that you asked that about sound quality. Um, uh, to go off a little bit on tangent, I, I'm, um, I guess you would say a skeptic. I keep up on, uh, on evidence-based medicine and, you know, pseudoscience. And, and I guess it's, I'm kind of a proponent of science, if you will. Uh, and so there's some, some uh, people I follow. And I saw a video last night by um, this in fact that kind of tries to shatter popular myths. And, uh, and I always enjoy little things like that, little snippets. And his conclusion was that um, it doesn't matter because other things in the chain, for example, the, the loudspeakers um, or the way it was recorded, the way it was mixed, the mastering engineer, the microphones, all those things are far more important than the difference between vinyl and digital, um, which was interesting because it, it was the first time that I'd seen one of those where he was actually wrong uh, because, you know, the vinyl experience for me, it's, I will say here I am going to release a vinyl. It's an inferior experience uh, because I'm I'm very focused on sound quality and mm-hmm. a CD. You know, a 16-bit 44.1 kilohertz sample uh, that can that can reproduce any sound perfectly. I know that sounds kind of like a weird thing to say uh, because you know people there's things like Tidal where they're selling high-resolution downloads and things like that, but uh, the CD can re- reproduce any sound perfectly. Uh, as far as our hearing is concerned. And vinyl cannot. You know, the noise floor is a lot higher. There's a lot of other, uh, um, you know, uh, factors that influence the the sound quality. But what vinyl offers, of course, is that experience of, you know, when when we were kids taking the record out of the sleeve, I'd follow along with the lyrics and and dropping the needle onto the the groove and and all that. And, And because of that, it kind of forces you to, to actually listen. It's not a background activity anymore. It's a foreground activity. And uh, so anyway, um, yeah, so I, I kind of toy with that. And I, I haven't had a turntable since I was a kid, so <laughs> I don't, I'm pretty out of that world. I, I have a feeling once I dip my toes in, I might be uh, singing a different tune. So you uh, list, of course, Beethoven and Brahms on your website as inspirations, but primarily you say your first musical inspiration is Depeche Mode. So I was curious if for the listeners you could kind of get into the uh, the story of why Depeche Mode made such an impact on you and then uh, sort of the story of uh, your song Ponytail Girl and the, and the Napster issue that occurred. You know, Depeche Mode was really the first band that I got into that made me want to buy music. Uh, I will say on the record that my first actual music purchase was the Eagles Hotel California on cassette. Uh, But that, I don't know, that didn't stick with me, but (laughs) a friend kind of turned me on to Depeche Mode and uh, I was just, the Some Great Reward album in particular, um, and I was just in love with that. And I was in love with the song Somebody. He had a typewriter, which I guess was how we did things back then, and I copied down the lyrics and you know on a on the typewriter so i could take them home and have them with me and dubbed some of it to cassette and um yeah it was just a a very different experience for me and that's what really got me into collecting music in the first place and so um you know there was the first band um i shouldn't say the first band well that i bought records for i went to their concerts my first concert was actually madonna and the drummer at that concert ended up being a drummer on one of my albums but that's that's another story um, so yeah, so they were, they were my primary influence, you know, I got into other 60s 
synth pop bands that were popular at the time, you know, Erasure, Pet Shop Boys. Uh, I was also really into The Cure and The Smiths, who aren't mm-hmm. synth pop, but those those are the big ones for me. Um, so anyway, uh, Ponytail Girl came about. I was writing my fourth full-length uh, album called Life's Fairy Tale, and it was taking me a long time. And uh, Christmas was coming up, and I had a little... Um, I threw together a little bonus CD for fans that included that song. Uh, I forget what it was. I think it was if they, they bought something. It was like it's something I added on for a Christmas special or something. So it was out in the wild, but uh, to less than 100 people. Anyway, uh, I don't remember the exact uh, month, but Exciter, the Depeche Mode album, was coming out. I think it was, you know, like in uh, – they usually come out. The Depeche Mode album is in March or May, right, on the 20th. I don't know why that sticks in my head, but uh, anyway, it was a few months before that, and Napster was just all the rage, and so everybody's on Napster, and there were so many tracks that were mislabeled. Uh, in fact, okay, so one of those was mine. Um, that was listed as Depeche Mode Ponytail Girl. Uh, there was another band called Joy Machine. They had a track that was um, that was being spread around, and I guess they sounded kind of Depeche-ish as well. But for some reason, um, mine kind of stuck. And I even went on there myself and I, you know, you can message people individually and I messaged somebody and I said, you know, Hey, that's, that's, can you change that? That's my song. That's not a Depeche Mode song. And he said, uh, no, I know for a fact that is Martin Gore singing. And so that was kind of <laughs> the end of that discussion. So, I mean, cause you know, it's a fact. Um, so yeah. And, and it was, it was really surreal because the track was on uh, bootlegs in other countries, you know, they have bootleg releases uh, that are actually sold as physical CDs. And so that song was on there um, on the uh, FAQ on Depeche Mode.com. It mentioned Ponytail, uh, Ponytail Girl by name, that it was not a Depeche Mode song. So anyway, that was part of what inspired me to do my Depeche Mode tribute album, um, where I had a track I was asked to do. There was a British compilation tribute CD coming out for Depeche Mode. And I was asked to record a song. I did I Want You Now. And uh, then the, the compilation just never happened. So I had that, that song, and then I had Ponytail Girl. So I had a Depeche Mode song and a song that was mistaken for a Depeche Mode song. I also had a newborn uh, and not a lot of time, but I wanted to make some music. And so um, I decided to do that Depeche Mode tribute. Uh, it's called Color Theory Presents Depeche Mode. And, uh, and that went over really well. And um, and I included Ponytail Girl as the last song, explaining very clearly <laughs> that it was not a, a Depeche Mode song. <laughs> I'm curious, what is the significance of uh, of the name Color Theory? I mean, why why work behind a name if it's just you, and what does that name mean to you? You know, it was the early '90s. Um, <laughs> Nine Inch Nails was Trent Reznor, um, mm-hmm. and I was really into Nine Inch Nails. I just, you know, I and and I've always kind of wanted to be anonymous. Like I've never. I'm not a performer. I don't perform at all now. Um, and I've always, I'm always reluctant to do stuff like, you know, do the photo shoot, which now I probably need to do another one. It's been a few years. Uh, I just like to stay out of the spotlight. And so using a pseudonym like that is, is one way that it allows me to, um, you know, not put my face out there so much. Um, and also it's just, it's just a little more, uh, it, it can tell you a little something about the music, you know, versus your name, Brian Hazard, I don't know. To me, it sounds like it's a metal thing or I don't know, like, right. you know, hazard. I don't know. So, um, 
yeah, I I just figured um, that would be that would be the way to go. And I had a friend who was in design school, and she had Color Theory 101, and you know Depeche Mode 101 was mm-hmm. out around that time, and so there was kind of a connection there. Um, and so I went with Color Theory. You've been producing and making music, you know, for more than uh, 20 years now, and you kind of label yourself as, you know, a synth pop in your blood, uh, but you mostly listen to EDM these days. I'm reading this uh, on your on your website right now. But how have you seen not only your sound evolve over, you know, the past 20 years, but also, you know, kind of sound in general uh, from the music industry? I mean, how have you seen that evolve uh, over time? You know, there was a time in the, the 90s where synth pop was basically totally underground. Uh, there wasn't it wasn't really represented in popular music at all, right? With grunge and all that. Um, so, but it, it kind of started to resurface. And it's funny. So back when it was really underground, we had a really strong community. Um, there were synth pop labels, like a different drum and ninth wave records um, in, in the U.S. And there were ones worldwide. Uh, there were festivals. So we all really knew each other in the scene. And I was mastering a lot of those albums for people. So, it was really cool, and that's when we were uh, the most, you know, remote. And over time, I mean, you've seen with EDM, it, if I listen to something like Zed or, uh, you know, like with a Selena Gomez lead vocal or something, I mean, that's, that's synth pop. I mean, I can't write a definition of synth pop that wouldn't include that. Um, so I feel like it's, you know, it's become a lot more, obviously, it's a lot more mainstream now because of, the pop station, like, you know, the top 40 station that I grew up listening to plays that kind of stuff now that I grew up listening to. The one that I grew up listening to at the gym because I had no choice, et cetera, et cetera. Um, <laughs> you know, but the, the main, the kind of the main LA pop station, I'm thinking like Kiss FM, something like that, you know, um, that they play that stuff now and, and you hear that stuff everywhere now. So it's interesting. It's become more mainstream and I've tried to modernize my sound by, holding on to the kind of traditional songwriting elements and some of those sounds from, from the eighties. Uh, but also including mainly in kind of the drum stuff and the drum arrangements and the structure, uh, some elements of EDM. Um, and the irony to me is that there are kind of some straight up retro synth pop acts, um, like churches or something like that, which uh, I don't know. <laughs> it seems like they, they, they're purest synth pop, and they're they're doing wonderfully, and I I mean they're making amazing music. So um, I don't know. It's just interesting to me that that I've kind of chosen to um, to modernize, and yet um, you know others who haven't are doing wonderfully as well. So um, yeah, but I I'm the the only one that I know that's kind of really going with this hybrid kind of sound, and um, I want to keep pursuing it. Uh, at the same time, the e- EDM, like I just, I had mentioned, I I was on a run earlier and I just got back before the interview. I was listening to uh, fresh EDM on Spotify. So for like two hours worth of <laughs> EDM. And it's just, it's not fresh to me anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, so I need to find what inspires me now. But um, yeah. So anyway, to answer your question about, about the direction of music, I think that, uh, that, over the past 20 years, it has become uh, the mainstream music market has become more and more accommodating for electronic music and electronic pop music, um, and that 
I'm not sure that that's if that's helped or hurt me personally, but um, but as a music fan, I'm very happy with that. So we'll see what happens. I'm curious. You uh, you have a video um, posted at the top of your About Me page, uh, What You Said, which I love the track, by the way. I think that, that may be the one we want to open the show with. But the video, I'm absolutely entranced by. It's uh, what Did you contract that out to someone? Where did the idea come from? I'm very fascinated by this video. Robbie Ryan, uh, all credit to him. He uh, He's a fan and a, a friend and a fellow uh, synth-pop music maker. And he just offered to do it. And it was, I mean, from what I understand, an incredible amount of work uh, because it's all, you know, like the stop motion thing and, and just, uh, yeah, yeah, everything was, uh, was done by hand, frame by frame. So, um, yeah, it was, and he, I'm hoping he's going to do another one. I did not pay him a cent. I mean, all my videos, uh, everything that you see, I don't have a lot of videos, by the way. I've never really focused on YouTube. Um, you know, I'll stick my songs up there with an album cover, but I don't have true videos. Uh, and the reason for that is because a lot of my, you know, mastering clients, I've seen, I've had clients spend five grand on a video and they'll post it and, you know, and it'll have 69 views. And I just don't, I just don't see it as, as worth it. And again, I talked about kind of my desire to be somewhat anonymous. Like I certainly don't want to be center stage in the video. Um, yeah. So, um, I totally forgot where we were going. (laughs) Yeah. What you said. Yeah. So anyway, uh, so I think what you said and headphones, uh, another friend uh, put that together as kind of a a bartered for some mastering um, and just kind of a friendly gesture. So those would be kind of the the two um, top quality uh, videos that I have. And then all the other ones that are actual videos are, you know, everything is fan made. It's kind of cool that you have that sort of interaction with your fans. I mean, I, you always hear about different musical artists that, uh, you, know, you know, it's kind of, you know, interacting with them on Twitter here and there. But to have that connection where they do, you know, help you create videos, I just think it's fascinating. And, you know, and speaking of, you know, kind of social media and connections, how important is that for you in terms of getting your sounds out there, interacting, kind of growing that synthpop sound. I mean, just looking at your Twitter page, I mean, you have like 2 million followers. I mean, that's just crazy. How did you get to that level and how do you maintain that connection and that intimacy, I guess, with your fans? Well, yeah, yeah, that's interesting because I'm I'm looking at new directions in in that too. But I mean, social media is key. Um, You know, that's kind of, I, I, I think of it as a hub and spokes model. So the hub being my own website where I can kind of post news items or whatever is going on and the spokes being all the different social media outlets that I can direct back to the hub. Um, so that's, that's kind of the way I, I look at it, that the goal is to, you know, hopefully bring, bring people on site where I can uh, talk to them in more than 140 characters, which is of course the limit on Twitter. Um, as far as the intimacy, it's so Twitter has become a bit unmanageable for me. Um, at this point, I still I go on uh, at least twice a week, and sometimes uh, it can be two, three hours. But I go through all the mentions, so that's where anybody has tried to speak to me directly. Um, and I work my way through all those and reply to everyone. And uh, and obviously that's a that's a big chunk of time in a in a pretty mm-hmm. limited schedule already with the mastering. I have two kids that I taxi around to all their their activities and. Um, so it's important, um, and 
and Twitter, like as you mentioned, I mean, I have two million followers there. But if you look at Facebook, you know, I think it's less than twenty thousand likes. And uh, Twitter is by far, you know, my main network. Um, and I, I, you know, I even have a, a social media manager there that's that uh, has has done a lot of work. And so that's been the big focus. And it's it's grown very slowly over the last. Well, I shouldn't say very slowly, but I mean, you know, obviously if it's up to two million, that's that's not too bad. But uh, it, it's taken a while to get there, I guess is what I'm saying. Um, ultimately, though, what I'm looking at is, you know, people don't really buy that much music anymore. And so um, I, I'm looking for something you know, like the, you're familiar with Patreon or, or oh, yeah. uh, there's Bandcamp has a subscription model now. And, uh, and so I'd like to do something like that because not not because I need the money necessarily, uh, but because I spend so much time on Twitter communicating with people that don't uh, don't really know me or know my music or just you know hit me up for a shout out or whatever. Um, versus in Patreon or Bandcamp, you are able to communicate with those supporters directly. So I guess what I'm saying is I would rather have a deeper interaction with 200 people. Uh, on Patreon or Bandcamp subscriptions, you know, with a, a thread where I can share things with them privately. Um, I don't mean my feelings necessarily. <laughs> you know, I can share share demos or, or ideas or get or get their feedback on the direction that things are going. You know, what do you think should be like this or like that? Um, I think that would be a lot more valuable, both for the the fans that really care and me. The growth and, and where I'm going to take things, I think that would be more valuable than you know just communicating with the majority of who are, are kind of strangers that I may not hear from again uh, on Twitter and just with that hours every week that investment would be better spent. I mean, even obviously better spent making music. Speaking of making music, uh, a lot of your songs are actually free to download. Is there kind of a reason? why that is the case? Is it just because, you know, maybe, you know, different streaming services such as Spotify or, uh, you know, SoundCloud, is there kind of a direction or reasoning or rationale behind that? Well, the way I look at it, uh, music is free. I mean, I, I wouldn't say music wants to be free. That was the argument 10 years ago when piracy was a big discussion. Uh, <laughs> but de facto music is free. If you just want to hear my music, you can go to YouTube. I mean, for any, anybody's music. Right, I mean, like uh, Taylor Swift and Adele had a lot of press when they kept their albums off Spotify, but you know, you could just go to YouTube and you could hear it. Spotify, I mean, I love Spotify as a music fan. That's that's where I've done all my listening pretty much for the last at least five years. Uh, even before I came to the U.S., I had a an account that I uh, kind of spoofed under a U.K. address because it was it was available overseas first. So uh, I think that's that's the way that I love to consume music. I can listen to anything I want. I can take a chance on things that I would never pay money for. And sometimes I'm surprised. Um, of course, the problem for an artist is that it's, it's essentially like free listening. The fact that I have free downloads, the thing is that's, that's in exchange for an email address when I, when I have them uh, given away. So I actually have an album called Free Downloads that's four tracks. And so that's a good introduction. And then they're on my mailing list. And then if they want, you know, so if they want to hear more, um, or establish some kind of uh, connection relationship. That's that's kind of the trade-off there, and so that's my hope is that uh, they'll download the music, they'll listen to it and like it, and they'll uh, 
you know, they'll follow me and, and we'll see where it leads. Brian, we really appreciate you uh, joining us on the weekly brew and taking the time out of your day after your run uh, to chat with us. And I, you know, I guess before we let you go, what is the best way for our listeners to connect with you and to find out more about you? I would say the best way would be to go to my website, colortheory.com. And uh, there's a, gosh, I've just re- revamped the site a little bit. I was going to say there's a, a mailing list sign up where you can sign up to keep informed. I'm not even sure there is a mailing list. <laughs> but uh, at colortheory.com on the, in the sidebar, there's a little album cover for color theory free downloads. And that would be, um, a great introduction because it's got four different tracks over a long span of time um, that are kind of fan favorites. And so, and if you download that, it's going to ask your email address and it will send you the download to that email address. And, uh, and then you'll be on the mailing list. And so I think that's kind of the best way. And I, you know, I email once or twice a month at most. Um, So I don't like to be in people's faces with, you know, a bunch of nonsense and, and promotional language and, you know, sell, sell, sell. Uh, that's to me. That's just not what it's about. Like I said, I mean, if somebody wants to support me, uh, that they're going to do that because they chose to do that, not because there's no other way they can, you know, get the music or mm-hmm. or whatever. So, or because it's you know on sale, sale, sale <laughs> for Black <laughs> Friday or whatever. Um, so yeah, so I think uh, going to the website is a great place to start, and there's lots of music to uh, to work through. And, you know, and all that, everything on, on my Bandcamp site, you can listen to any of that, as I think, as much as you want. So, you know, I, I mentioned going to YouTube. For me, I mean, all my music is there, and, uh, you know, you can play any of it as much as you want without needing to spend any money. And so, um, so hopefully people will take the time to kind of look around and, and see if there's something that they like. We've definitely enjoyed chatting with you today. And again, thank you so much for uh, taking the time out of your day and uh, calling us in and you know just having this interview with us. We definitely appreciate it. Definitely my pleasure. Thank you. You're listening to The Weekly Brew. Kevin, we just had Brian Hazard of Color Theory on the podcast. He was able to call us from sunny California, but... I was pretty fascinated by that interview. I mean, honestly, I I wasn't all that familiar with a a lot of his work uh, here until, you know, almost a few weeks ago. But the interview to me was fascinating. We got an inside look at the music scene, kind of how it has evolved over the past 20 years. And we even talked about vinyls. I mean, it was just overall quite a fascinating interview. I'm curious, what did you think about it? Well, you know, I I sort of stumbled across him and uh, and his music and I did. uh, I I enjoyed it. I loved it. And um, and sort of reached out to him. And, And when you do these sorts of things and you reach out to someone that you've only met, through the internet, kind of experience and through the lens of their work, you never know how they're going to be. And I have to say, I was uh, pleasantly surprised. Brian was uh, articulate and entertaining and funny and uh, just seems like a great guy. And I, I love his stuff all the more for that. So I was really pleased that he was able to come on and, uh, and give us a great interview like that. I think it, uh, it was wonderful stuff. Yeah, and again, you can check out uh, Brian Hazard in Color Theory. Check him out on uh, Twitter at Color Theory, and you can also check out his website at colortheory.com. Uh, he's got a lot of great stuff on there, and we had mentioned uh, the music video for what you said. Uh, we'll post that on our Facebook page as well, but very, very cool stop-motion uh, graphics there, and uh, we definitely uh, enjoyed Brian taking the time out of his day, and uh, we hope you did as well. Closing time. We touched a variety of topics in this week's podcast, uh, episode 20. Uh, we spoke a little bit about college football, what's going on with the Houston Rockets and Dwight Howard. We also had Brian Hazard of Color Theory on the podcast. Kevin, I really enjoyed uh, episode 20, but going back one additional week to episode 19, we actually had, it was it was our most successful podcast. I think a little bit might have had to do with the Star Wars preview that we had, but we had listeners 
from more than 55 countries. I mean, that's insane. Uh, We had listeners from the United Kingdom, Canada, Germany, Brazil, France, Australia, Netherlands, Spain, Sweden, Norway, Poland, Um, even some places that uh, I didn't know we had fans like Latvia, uh, Turkey, Puerto Rico, uh, Pakistan. So uh, we had listeners from all over the world. And uh, we actually had a few new iTunes reviews, Kevin, if you want to tell us about that. Yeah, first of all, 55 countries. I didn't know we had 55 listeners. So that's really impressive to me, um, particularly since I don't speak any of the languages that are primarily spoken in any of those regions you mentioned, except the UK. And I don't um, I don't have a very good British accent either. So I, I'm flattered that we're being listened to that widely. Um, keep it up, guys. I really appreciate that. Last last week was our most successful episode by far, but we hope to top it with this week's. Uh, and again, you know, we've talked before on the show about how much the iTunes reviews mean to me. Uh, and sure, they help us show up in searches that help people find us on iTunes, which is where a lot of people get their podcasts. That's true. But on a deeper level, I'm dissatisfied with myself as a person, as a being. And so this kind of helps to fill a hole that exists in me, like a chasm that I just sort of pour your adoration and praise into. And it really, really, um, you know, puts puts a finger in the dike, so to speak, from week to week. And so uh, some people stepped up and did that this week. We had two new reviews, so I've had a pretty good week as a result. Um, I feel like my life is not uh, not too bad. Hayden, what do you think is this, Canopic? I think that's right. Hayden Nopic, Canopic. Great show with five stars. Stumbled upon this podcast Sunday night and absolutely loved episode 19. Not many podcasts out there can manage to discuss Star Wars, Rocky College Football, and Indie Rock. Keep up the good work. Austin and Kevin. And that brings up an interesting point. He stumbled upon this podcast. We'd be curious to hear how you stumbled upon this podcast, whether it be um, from reading uh, about us on Twitter or linking there, Facebook. Um, We're on a lot of different directories and apps. So um, in the future, you know, we try to aggregate all of the praise onto the iTunes reviews because that's where we're, you know, most likely to get discovered. But but if you you discovered us through another venue or avenue, we would love to hear about that in your reviews as well. Just kind of help us figure out um, how are people coming across this show. Uh, and an excellent source for Houston news and sports from Tom Truver. I am a very avid podcast subscriber with a long daily commute, and I cycle through a number of regular podcasts. I am thankful to have been introduced to the Weekly Brew. Kevin and Austin have cultivated an excellent show with outstanding insight and dialogue on movies, sports, music, and political events. I highly recommend this podcast to listeners. So there you have it from two guys who would know. Um, I got to say, I'm going to be walking. Uh, what is it? What's the expression? Walking on sunshine? Or is that a song? I don't know. Whatever it is, I'll be walking on sun. Yeah, it's going to be what's happening to me for the next week at least. So uh, keep that uh, sort of on a roll for me, folks. Go to iTunes, click ratings and reviews, and uh, leave us a five-star review with something nice and maybe some constructive criticism. And don't forget to subscribe so that each new episode is pushed directly into your iTunes feed. In addition to iTunes, we want to make make sure that you follow us on social media. You can go to twitter.com at Weekly Brewcast. You can go to Facebook.com slash Weekly Brewcast. You can also check us out on Instagram, Instagram.com Weekly Brewcast again. But we want to make sure that you go there, find us, interact with us. Uh, in addition to iTunes, we want to make sure that we have that connection with our listeners. And uh, we want to hear your feedback, show ideas, or anything that you could anything that you can imagine that would help improve the podcast uh, to make it something that you like. I mean, because that's what we do. We do this for you. Uh, we definitely enjoy recording each week, and uh, we hope you enjoy our commentary as well and the interviews and guests that we have on the show. Uh, but I definitely enjoyed episode 20. We hope you did as well. Uh, but it's Christmas this week. We hope everyone has a safe and happy holidays. Merry Christmas. Uh, for Kevin Cook, I'm Austin Staten. We'll see you next week. been listening to the Weekly Brew.